Obviously, nuclear power is a big and important invention. But is nuclear power actually the worst invention on our list? Swedish philosopher Nick Bostrom brings the idea of white, grey and black balls to describe human creativity. He argues that one way to look at creativity is of a giant urn of creativity. In order to progress, humans have to extract balls from this urn. Most balls have been great for humanity. Amongst the white balls, you could say agriculture, books, language, football. But obviously, there has been a black ball for individual civilizations. The Europeans' ability for transoceanic travel led to devastation for the Americas, Australia, Africa and parts of Asia. But for Europe, it was still a white ball. No civilization we know of has yet pulled out a black ball for themselves. No civilization has destroyed itself through innovation. And, axiomatically, no civilization has pulled out a black ball that has destroyed all of human civilization. Civilizations come, go, and change, but it's not really to do with inventions. If anything, it's the lack of inventions. Bostrom's vulnerable world hypothesis argues we only need to pull out one black ball, one invention that screws it up for human civilization to collapse. Is nuclear power, therefore, a black ball? Well, probably not. Firstly, nuclear power is hard to make. Anybody could get a steam engine, or even make their own internal combustion engine. Nuclear power is different. If you had a lot of uranium sitting about, it's most likely natural uranium, so you'd have to concentrate it into uranium-235 rather than uranium-238. It then needs to be enriched so it's 20% uranium-235 to be used in a reactor, or around 90% if you want to use it in a bomb. That's all quite difficult. So nuclear power is probably something of a grey ball, not dangerous enough to be black, and useful enough to have elements of white. Harnessing the power of the nucleus has brought terror, nuclear bombs, the Cold War, but also clean power, the impossibility of war between the great powers due to this proliferation of nuclear weapons. Whatever your thoughts of nuclear power, energy or bombs, it has been one of the most important and impactful inventions in human history. Power and energy is vital to modern life. We eat food which gave humans energy, invented agriculture which gave us more reliable energy supplies, then domesticated the animal who could turn food we didn't eat into energy we could use, things like riding horses or the use of beasts of burden. Then we used wind energy for sailing, meaning we could sail further and in bigger ships. Then after centuries of long waiting, we could use coal to power the steam engine, one of the primary inventions of the Industrial Revolution. After that, we used oil for the internal combustion engine. And now we're trying to move away from fossil fuels, energy sources that will run out, to ones that will not. This will be solar, hydro and nuclear, among others. It took centuries for us to minimise the steam engine for it to be used in trains, and it may be the same for nuclear. Maybe one day, nuclear power could power a car. But even now, it can still be used to produce lots of safe and clean renewable energy. I believe nuclear is the natural replacement for coal and oil. Other renewables should be used, but nuclear has the most potential. Energy is one of the most important and in-demand things man has ever produced.
The more and cheaper it can be produced, the better. Conventional nuclear power has proved to be a good step. But the real prize is nuclear fusion. Being able to produce the power of the sun, and being able to use this power in miniature, it could power, well who knows what. Being able to harness the energy of what powers the sun could prove a huge energy revolution. An energy revolution the likes of which the steam engine and internal combustion engine once brought. We all know some of the history of nuclear power, whether it's the bombs or the nuclear meltdowns. Though I doubt you know, about the 99.999% of times, nuclear power has worked perfectly and caused no incidents at all. But how did nuclear power come about? For terminology's sake, I'll clear it up now. Pre-Second World War, the most common word was atomic or atom power or energy, whereas now we say nuclear bomb or nuclear power. Though really it should be called uranium or plutonium energy, as these are the materials responsible for the energy. Anyway, the late 19th century saw theories and theoretical explanations of the atom, with no real means to explore it. Atomic theory was useful in chemistry, as we saw in the episode on the periodic table, but people still weren't sure if it was just a useful model or accurate at all. Ernest Rutherford came to the UK on his scholarship from New Zealand. It was a world away from what he was used to. He received a cable acknowledging his scholarship to Cambridge while digging potatoes in New Zealand. One month after, Rutherford arrived, and German physicist William Rotingen discovered X-rays and reported his discovery, stunning the world. J.J. Thompson began studying X-rays, and almost as soon as this news was published, he carried on experiments, culminating in what he discovered and reported as a negative corpsule, which today we call the electron and the first part of the atom to be identified. They worked out that once the electron was split away from the atom, it became positively charged. This meant something would have to be negatively charged. Rutherford turned his attention to radiation and explored the subject. He confirmed that alpha particles were positively charged helium atoms ejected during the radioactive decay. During this, he offered some informal thoughts. Quote, the energy of radioactive change must therefore be at least 20,000 times and maybe a million times as great as the energy of any molecular change. Close quotes. Rutherford was also heard to state that, quote, some fall in a laboratory might blow up the entire universe unawares. Close quotes. In 1903, he visited the Curies, who were in Paris, as Marie received her PhD on the very day he visited. On the visit, Pierre showed him a tube coated with zinc sulphide, which was bright enough to show Rutherford Pierre Curie's hand inflamed and in pain due to the exposure of radium rays. After a sojourn to Montreal to take up a teaching post, Rutherford went to Manchester as Professor of Physics, the city where John Dalton had revived the idea of atomic theory. While there, he inherited Hans Geiger as his assistant. The two worked on an electrical device to count and see individual alpha particles. Geiger would later push this device even further to the modern Geiger counter we use today to detect radiation. After experiments, Rutherford announced that the atom had a nucleus and chose to go public on the 7th of March 1911. 
Rutherford did not have an arrangement of the electrons yet. After Japanese scientist Hantara Nakayoko proposed the Saturnian model of the atom with flat rings of electrons revolving around the nucleus, it flew in the face of what classical physics proposed. Despite this, the model when tested clearly did work. How could you resolve classical physics and Rutherford's experiments? But then, just like that, Niels Bohr arrived in Manchester to experiment with radioactivity. Bohr was a highly talented athlete. He had his first scientific paper published at 22, did a medical degree and then a PhD in physiology. He met Rutherford, who he had long admired, and is often seen that Bohr was the most talented of Rutherford's students. No mean feat, as Rutherford trained 11 Nobel Prize winners, a record. Working in Manchester, as he found Cambridge work unsubstantial, Bohr began to see connections in the electron theory work, and realised in only a few weeks that radioactive properties originated in the atomic nucleus, and that the total number of positive charges determines its position on the periodic table. Bohr's insight into the atom won him the Nobel Prize in 1922. So how often do you think about the Eastern European country of Hungary? Maybe if you're interested in the First World War, or interested in the history of football and the great Hungarian side of the 1930s to 1950s. Maybe you really like Budapest, or maybe you like Liszt, or maybe, just maybe, you're interested in the history of science. Like the great Hungarian football side of the 1950s, in the space of a few years Hungary produced some of the greatest scientists and mathematicians the world has ever seen. All of them came from the same country, and at the same time, and they all eventually emigrated away from Hungary. The most famous of them were Edward Teller and John von Neumann. Teller, like Einstein, didn't speak until he was three years old, but when he did speak, he spoke in complete sentences. John von Neumann had such cognitive power he could joke with his father in classical Greek and had a genuine photographic memory. However, at the end of the First World War, the Hungarian Revolution broke out in October 1918, and the Austro-Hungarian monarchy collapsed in November, and the Republic of Hungary was founded on November the 16th, four months later, and it became the Hungarian Soviet Republic. This alarmed Teller and von Neumann. Von Neumann fled a while later in 1921 to Berlin, while Teller left in 1926 to Karlsruhe. December 1919, is when the world began to hear of a Jewish scientist working in Europe. A new figure in world history, the Berliner Illustrated Zeitung, called him. On a part with Copernicus, Kepler and Newton, he was called. It was natural anti-Semites would come for this man, for he was Albert Einstein, 43 years old and amongst the world's top-tier physicists. He had been nominated for the Nobel Prize in eight of the past ten years. In 1915, he directly challenged Newton with his general theory of relativity. The theory predicted that starlight would be deflected when it passed through a massive body like the Sun at twice the value Newton predicted by 1919, and this was able to be tested. When it was confirmed on the 6th of November that Einstein was right, it was one of the greatest moments of the day. Newton was wrong, and this Einstein person was right catapulting him into fame and the attention of German anti-Semites. The world now looked at this pacifist Jew speaking of internationalism. 
It was a fascist conspiracy theorist's wet dream. And it wasn't long before general relativity was attacked as a Jewish conspiracy. Einstein had rescinded his German citizenship in 1896 and had taken up a Swiss one in 1901. After a spell at the University of Zurich, he got a triple position in Berlin, a research position, a research professorship, and the directorship of the planned Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physics. After a few trips to America, Einstein was conflicted on the Jewish people. He said that he had seen countless Jews in Germany, but not the Jewish people, who were thriving in America, not having to feel the need to assimilate quite as much. The European Jew, he said, had always annoyed him. They assimilated to a society which permitted anti-Semitism. On June the 24th, 1922, Walter Rathnau, the foreign minister and a friend of Einstein and a highly prominent Jew was gunned down in Germany. Einstein feared he might be next. Einstein then went on a long world tour before settling back down in Germany. But by December 1932, he saw the turn from passive anti-Semitism to active anti-Semitism. Einstein moved to Belgium and then crossed the channel to England and from there he went to the United States. He wasn't the only one. Hundreds of physicists emigrated to the US between 1933 and 1941. That might not sound a lot, but in 1932 there was only 2,500 physicists in America. And the physicists who left Europe were not your average scientist. In New York, young Robert Oppenheimer was born from a German family, Jewish but non-practicing. For a toy as a child, he got given a professional microscope, and he began lab experiments in the third grade, and was so interested in rocks that he lectured at the American Museum of Natural History at the age of 12. At the age of 20, Oppenheimer was accepted into Cambridge, and went to work at the Cavendish Laboratory, where he was accepted by an aging J.J. Thompson. Post-First World War work on quantum theory was beginning, and Oppenheimer wanted to get going with it as quickly as possible. In 1926, he moved from Gottingen to study under Max Born. One of the centres for physics research, he met Edward Teller there, and also Enrico Fermi and Werner Heisenberg. Oppenheimer, while there, saw the devastation the First World War had caused. He was well treated, but the Great Depression he found in the city was unlike anything he had seen before. While there, he got his doctorate, published 16 papers between 1926 and 1929, and established himself as a leading physicist. The Cavendish lab proved to still be a remarkable centre for scientific research in the post-war years, despite its wear and tear. However, even the famed Cavendish lab couldn't keep up with the American progress with particle accelerators. The same American ethos that had resulted them being the great mass producers and mechanical innovators was soon extended into the lab after the First World War. Twice as many Americans became physicists in the years of 1920 to 1932 than in the previous 60 years, and they were better trained. Many were on European boards for education, Europe still holding over America a kind of historic legitimacy it couldn't give itself. By 1932, the US had 2,500 physicists, three times as many as 1919. These new physicists were the height of intellect and had been the subject of deep investigations into their characters and background. Most of the physicists were first-born sons. 
with the theoreticians ranking at around 170 IQ points, with the experimentalists at around 150. The makeup of these physicists with high IQ, limited social skills, and the feeling of being different is basically the makeup on what the modern day person thinks a genius to be. Without going all the way back through the history of particle accelerators, during the 1930s there was a preponderance of development. The scientists who had grown up with the atom were now in charge of the universities and could push for change and the funding to build them. James Chadwick is perhaps the most important British figure we'll cover in this episode. He studied under Rutherford for a bit before moving to Berlin in 1913 to work under Hans Geiger. When the war broke out, he was put in an internment camp for four awful solitary years. He did do a few bits of researching, but as soon as the war over, he went back to Manchester and joined the search for the neutron. After reading a work by Irene Jolette Curie, daughter of Marie, he repeated what she did and moved towards new types of investigations. He quietly threw out much of her work and came up with his own hypothesis. After a solid 10 days, he proved his hypothesis to be true. He sent a report to Nature. He then announced it at a private members club for physicists at Cambridge and told of his discovery, and then left to go to bed in what has been called one of the shortest accounts ever made about a major discovery. What he discovered was neutron. The neutron is the thing that adds weight to an element without adding electrical charge. The year was 1932 when the neutron was discovered and it changed nuclear physics forever. He found the neutron, the subatomic particle with no net electrical charge. The nucleus, the proton and the neutrons are bound together by a nuclear force and the neutron is the key to the stability of the nuclei. With the discovery of nuclear fission in 1938, it was realised that if a fission event produces neutrons, these neutrons might cause further fission events in a cascade known as a nuclear chain reaction. This is where I was going to play Chain Reaction by Diana Ross, but who can afford the rights? The discovery of the nuclei had immediate effects in the science community. Irene Jolot Curie and Frédéric Jolot Curie experimented with the new particle in trying to get radioactive decay. When a gag account reported a spike, they reported it in 1934 and were congratulated by Rutherford. Together, they were awarded the Nobel Prize in 1935. The ability for induced radioactivity fascinated many scientists, including Enrico Fermi. Only 25 years old, when he became professor of physics at the University of Rome, Fermi found physics well supported by the fascist regime of Mussolini. In the late 1920s, it was decided that Italy should be on the forefront of physics, and so scientific patron Orso Corbino chose nuclear physics as its calling. Fermi and a team began with neutron bombardment experiments and found radioactivity in aluminium with a half-life of 12 minutes, which was a figure different to that of the Jolot Curies. He then reported inducing radioactivity in iron, silicon, phosphorus, chlorine, vanadium, copper, arsenic, silver, tellurium, iodine, chromium, barium, sodium, magnesium, titanium, zinc, selenium, antimony, bromine, and lanthanum. The process was simple. 
The irradiated substances from one end were tested under the guide counter at the other end of the long hall where they were working. This meant that when the half-life of radioactivity was short, somebody had to run down the hall to test it. Lighter elements were transmuted into heavier elements by ejecting a proton or alpha particle, but heavier elements got heavier. They captured the bombarding neutron and it became a heavier isotope of itself. When they got to uranium, they released a heavier isotope, uranium-239, and then managed to make a man-made element with the atomic number of 93. Fermi never made the claim he discovered 93, and the question of whether he did was never quite resolved, as Fermi had better things to try and discover. But the question posed by Fermi did say one thing. Uranium was confusing. It was also noted that their experiments worked better on a wooden table rather than a marble table top. Fermi remembered that Chadwick reported that when neutrons pass through a paraffin wax, they induce it 100 times than without. He concluded that collisions with hydrogen atoms slowed the neutrons. The lower the atomic number of the nucleus, the more energy a neutron loses per collision, and therefore the fewer collisions are required to slow a neutron down by a given amount. Fermi developed an equation to explain this, called the Fermi Age Equation. He would receive the Nobel Prize in 1938 for these investigations into radioactivity. As fascism spread across Europe, first in Germany, then in Spain, the fascist axis was firmly entrenched in Europe. When Hitler took over Austria in the Anschluss of 1938, Mussolini was pleased for Hitler, and Hitler told Mussolini he would never forget this. By summer of 1938, Mussolini had started to implement anti-Jewish laws. Not a problem for Fermi himself, other than morally. However, his wife was Jewish. Their children might have been okay, as they'd been brought up Catholic. But there was no point in risking it. The mix of politics and science is never good. The clear and pure nature of science versus the muddy, difficult nature of politics has still never been sorted. Niels Bohr had spoken at a conference in Denmark, declaring his antipathy towards Nazism, causing the German delegation to leave. He said the purpose of science was to set people free, the opposite of totalitarianism. Fermi was to attend that conference, and when he and Niels Bohr spoke, Bohr told Fermi he had been nominated for the Nobel Prize. On the morning of the 10th of November, Fermi got the call he had been expecting, but he had indeed been awarded the Nobel Prize. He had been planning to go to the United States anyway, ostensibly, for a six-month lecture tour. They could not sell their house and escape, as only the equivalent of $50 could be taken out of the country. The Nobel Prize money was the only money they now had. Three days before the awarding of the prize was Kristallnacht, with the SS arresting many rich Jews and sending them to Dachau and other camps. On receiving the Nobel Prize, Fermi left Italy and then emigrated to the United States. By the mid-1930s, the three greatest living physicists had spoken on the idea of harnessing nuclear energy. Rutherford thought it was nonsense, Einstein thought it was shooting in the dark, and Bohr said it was a distinct possibility if theory could catch up to experiments. In 1937, Rutherford died, shocking the physics community. Rutherford's ashes were interned at Westminster Abbey, where he was called the Newton of atomic physics. In December 1938, German chemists Otto Hahn and Fritz Straussmann 
detected the element barium after bombarding uranium with neutrons, which Lise Meitner and nephew Otto French interpreted as the result of nuclear fission. The experiments led to the discovery of uranium's ability to fission, break apart, into lighter elements and binding energy. The result, within almost no time at all, was Philip Morrison, a theoretical physicist, drawing on a blackboard in Robert Oppenheimer's office a bomb. Fermi too looked at Manhattan Island and said, looking at it, it would all disappear. Leo Silzard, another Hungarian emigre in America, was determined not to let the Nazis get information on the potential of a chain reaction from uranium. Nuclear chain reaction occurs when one single nuclear reaction causes an average of one or more subsequent nuclear reactions, thus leading to the possibility of a self-propagating series of these reactions. Silzard thought the conservative thing to do with regard to nuclear chain reactions would be to take all proportions, while Fermi believed that it was too far a possibility to be considered. The two entered something of a scientific debate about it. The situation in Europe heightened all the time, with Hitler threatening to bomb Prague unless Czechoslovakia surrendered. Meanwhile, many of the scientists we've mentioned, Bohr, Silzard and Teller, met up to discuss two interconnected things. Nazi research into nuclear physics and how easy it might be to make a bomb. They decided to carry on research in nuclear physics, but not to publish the results, and that the Nazis should not be allowed to research it. Bohr was sceptical of their ability to do so. The difficulties in splitting large amounts of uranium-235 would be too much, even for the United States. For Bohr, there was difficulty in not being able to publish results. That's how the science community worked. It would reduce an idealistic anarchical world that the science community was into a petty warring state of scientists. The science world would be reduced to nothing more than politics, and these great geniuses would be little more than grubby politicians who kept secrets for their own gain. But that was still better than the Nazis getting the bomb. Slowly the issues diffused toward Washington circles, with the New York Times reporting on it in its April 29th edition. It said that small amounts of uranium-235 could cause a chain reaction causing a bomb to explode for many miles, and then discussion moved to where you might get uranium from, when it was remembered that there was a large amount of uranium in the Congo. The Congo's colonial admission was Belgian, and Belgium was right next to Germany. In something resembling a scientific crime film with a fixer, the scientists contacted Einstein, who knew the Queen of Belgium, having met her in 1929 and having since maintained correspondence. Einstein didn't want to write to the Queen, and so agreed to speak to a member of the Belgian embassy. They agreed to send the letter through the State Department, and so Einstein and Silzard drafted the letter. They met Alexander Sachs, vice president of the Lehman Corporation, and a national economist who said the letter should also be taken to Roosevelt, who Sachs sometimes phoned. Based on the first letter, they redrafted the letter to also address Roosevelt. Teller drove Silzard, who didn't drive, up to Einstein's house, and they reviewed the letter. Silzard even thought to get Charles Lindbergh, the aviator we met in the last episode, to also sign the letter but was convinced not to, considering the relationship 
between Lindbergh and Roosevelt wasn't great. Events delayed things, and by the end of the summer the letter still hadn't been sent. On September 1st, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland, and the Nazis rolled in with their blitzkrieg method. The symbiosis between the German divisions of infantry and air power proved too powerful. The Polish put up more of a fight than often remembered, but they were no match for the Germans. Roosevelt asked Hitler to respect civilians. The invasion brought Britain and France into the war. While Britain agreed to a request from Roosevelt to protect all civilians. That September also saw the German War Office set up a nuclear fission research mission. Only a few weeks after the start of the war, W.F. Meyer published an article called Energy from Matter, talking about the possibility to get energy from matter. The Germans called in all their considerable expertise and had the same thoughts as the Americans, with their difficulty in separating uranium-235 to make an explosion. On Wednesday, October 11th, Sachs met Roosevelt and told him a Napoleon story. This being my podcast and my supposed obsession with Napoleon, I'm more than too happy to relay it to you. He told him the story of Robert Fulton meeting Napoleon. Fulton was one of the great engineers and inventors of his day, designing the first practical submarine in 1800 and the first successful steamboat which ran on the Hudson in 1807, doing the 300-mile round trip from New York to Albany and back in 62 hours. Sykes told Roosevelt, in the story at any rate, of the inventor going to meet Napoleon and proposing a possible fleet of ships that didn't use sails and could attack England in any weather. If the French had ships that could sail in any weather, then the English would find it a lot more difficult to fight back. France could invade England without having to face the formidable Royal Navy. Napoleon scoffed at Fulton and said, Bah! Away with your visionists! Sachs related the idea of the letter first, telling Roosevelt about nuclear fission and the power the bombs could produce. Sachs related the ambivalence of the bomb and how it was not good nor evil, just a discovery waiting to be made, and then repeated a sentence from a lecture by Francis Aston. Quote, Personally, I think there is no doubt that subatomic energy is available all around us, and that one day man will release and control its almost infinite power. We cannot prevent him from doing so, and can only hope that he will not use it exclusively in blowing up his next-door neighbour." Roosevelt agreed this needed action, and they agreed to set up a committee to look into it. Then followed investigations of heavy water to be used in nuclear reactors. The idea that it would act as a neutron moderator to slow down the neutrons, so they are more likely to react with a fissile uranium-235 rather than the uranium-238, which captures neutrons without fissioning. Germans were the first to really look into heavy water, but it was difficult in Germany because there were no extraction plants. The closest one nearby was in Norway. The German war office offered to buy all the heavy water they had, but the Norwegians refused. The Germans needed 80 gallons a month, however the plant only made 3 gallons of heavy water. The Norwegian company refused to stop or to increase production. In 1940, Soviet physicists reported on fission in uranium. 
The lack of response led the Soviets to believe there was a big secret project underway in the United States. While the Japanese saw some of the early reports and worked out what this now meant. For many, there was a moral question of investigating such weapons. Edward Teller debated that his life had been uprooted by totalitarianism and that he knew what Germany having the bomb and the US not having the bomb would mean. Then, on May the 10th, two things happened. Roosevelt was about to speak to a pan-American scientific congress in Washington and Germany invaded Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. Teller went to the conference and FDR said how it was a moral necessity to help work out such military problems. These military problems increased with the German invasion of Norway. Germany now had access to a heavy water factory in Norway and a uranium ore in the Belgian Congo. With the Germans having a world-class chemical plants and very good physicists, chemists and engineers, making a bomb was now a possibility. Maybe they didn't have quite what the US had, because the US now had all the Jewish emigres, but the Germans were now more than competent to produce a bomb. Japan too found uranium in the colonies, and they began to develop nuclear fission. 100 of the best scientists in Japan began to work on the bomb. There was no great compunction in the United States about not going all out on the nuclear project, but interest only grew with Hitler's advances. When Operation Barbarossa was carried out, the German war aims grew. Even as early as 1941, Teller and Fermi were thinking about how to make a hydrogen bomb, but first a nuclear bomb would have to be developed. Despite all the talk in America, it was discovered that the British were now a lot further ahead in nuclear research than the Americans. British science was still at the cutting edge. Plus, the war economy in Britain meant the British were estimating a bomb by 1943, if they had all the materials, which they didn't. So it was decided that the British should suck up to the Americans to get the bomb made, which they could then both jointly use. Roosevelt did not tell Congress or the courts about the secret project. This was a military decision and he was the commander-in-chief. In September, Heisenberg in Germany got the first lot of heavy water from Norway, 40 gallons worth, and prepared for a chain reaction experiment. He found some increase in neutrons in his experiments, pointing towards possible future success. Oddly, Heisenberg then talked to Niels Bohr, some kind of father figure, and the two almost talked in code, fearing espionage. Reluctantly, Heisenberg confirmed to Bohr that fission was theoretically possible, and that he'd already done experiments to that end. Oppenheimer also heard the story from Bohr, and this admission from Heisenberg was perhaps the first real steps towards the United States building the bomb. When Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, the Americans were stunned. The surprise attack came from nowhere, and it was almost a perfectly planned out attack. Not long after, and the Russians managed to halt the German advance as they marched towards Moscow. This meant that the German economy had reached the limits of expansion, and, as the war would continue, it meant more and more money had to be put into keeping the Eastern Front going. Germany would finally enter into a true war economy. And as we saw on the rocketry episode, Nazi R&D did not include new tech like rockets or the nuclear program. The War Office reduced the funding of the uranium research, meaning it was funded just by the Ministry of Education. Heisenberg had a meeting with many top Nazis, including Albert Speer, who seemed enthused, if a little uneducated. 
The Germans needed a cyclotron particle accelerator, and Speer said they would build them, but to get to US levels of research, they would need a lot of expertise, something they didn't have. They would need billions of Reichsmarks to build what was needed, but only asked for a few hundred thousand. Hitler, though, was not interested in the project, and only once in brief in the entire war did Speer speak to him about the topic. After Speer was informed it may take three or four years of heavy investment to get any return, the German nuclear program was scuttled. Heisenberg in retrospect said the scientists were spared a decision on whether to support the program. The United States were in no such desperate measures, however. For the United States, as Roosevelt said, time, not money, was the most important factor. In summer 1942, Oppenheimer held a gathering for the luminaries of theoretical physicists, who were starting to think a design for the actual bomb. The furthest they got, other than talking about the hydrogen bomb again, was that for a bomb to be developed, it would take huge scientific and engineering efforts to get it made. Enrico Fermi was working at Columbia University, and in 1939 he conducted the first nuclear fission experiment in the United States. By 1941, and the advisory committee on uranium was set up by Roosevelt, as we mentioned previously, and they gave him the money to buy the graphite for experiments. By August 1941, Fermi had 6 tonnes of uranium oxide and 30 tonnes of graphite. In May 1942, Fermi began to plan a full-scale chain reaction. He planned to build it 20 miles outside of Chicago, but an industrial dispute halted the work, and Fermi managed to persuade a committee member he could build his nuclear reactor under the squash court at the University of Chicago. He was allowed to build the reactor without informing the president of the university. The potential for meltdown, a word without nuclear connotations just yet, was vast. Yet, Fermi was a genius, and the potential for a Chernobyl-type event was very small. But imagine today building a nuclear reactor under the sports hall at Yoy School or University. On the 16th of November 1942, construction started on the reactor, and on the 2nd of December, Fermi began to start the experiments. At 9.45, the experiment began, and they took out a cadmium rod, so it was half out, and the intensity of the device rose. The neutron intensity increased before levelling off, and a crowd began to gather. At 3.52, the reactor went critical, with its neutron intensity doubling every two hours. Power production by the direct conversion of matter to energy was now seen as possible. If the reactor was left on, it could reach a million kilowatts and kill everyone inside. Fermi waited a minute and turned it off. For the first time in human history, man had successfully controlled the release of energy from the nucleus of an atom. Fermi and the group celebrated with one of the last bottles of Italian wine left in Chicago, and the beginning of the nuclear power era was reached. By September 1942, it was clear to those in the know that the A-bomb project needed to get serious, and with absolute secrecy. They had read British reports of an attempt to build a bomb, and began to think the idea of building a bomb may be practical. The project to get this made was to be called the Laboratory for the Development of Substitute Materials. General Groves of the US Army Corps of Engineers and the military man in charge hated the name and changed it to the name of a non-existent office of the Corps of Engineers. 
the Manhattan Engineering District. Everybody just called it the Manhattan Project. By 1942, Robert Oppenheimer was 38, and a greatly respected figure in the science world. The 1930s had changed Oppenheimer. His mother and father had died within six years of each other, and he said this is when he first discovered suffering. Before the suffering, he was in his own little world. Then, with the Great Depression and with the suffering of the Jews, he began to become more informed on the world. He claimed he did not read newspapers or listen to the radio, and had only learned of the Wall Street crash of 1929, while he was on a walk with Ernest Lawrence of the Cyclotron fame, some six months after the crash had actually occurred. Oppenheimer met General Leslie R. Groves, and they talked about setting up a fast neutron lab. It wasn't the obvious choice to get Oppenheimer as director. He had no Nobel Prize, no project management experience, but the general wanted Oppenheimer. The site for this lab, Site Y, needed good transport links, good water supply, a labour force and a moderate climate for year-round construction. The task of finding a good location was left to Major John H. Dudley. With, with a list more demanding than a Mariah Carey rider, Dudley found Los Alamos, which Oppenheimer thought to be a lovely spot. Nearby was a school which was bought for $440,000 by the University of California for the project, officially. And with the basis of the school, numerous barracks-like buildings were constructed. Everybody now knew the importance of this mission. This was a military operation, and it was war. They knew the project here might result in a bomb to bring about an end to the war. Oppenheimer was in charge of the scientific community around the lab, and would report only to General Groves, while the army would control the community that surrounded the lab. For some of the European scientists, the fences around them reminded them of concentration camps. Over in Europe, the British had sabotaged the heavy water plant in Norway. Nearly half a tonne of heavy water went into the drains, and it would take nearly a year to fully repair the site. In Japan, both the Air Force and Navy had been developing the bomb. Between 1942 and 1943, the Navy arranged ten symposiums to work through what to do about the bomb. They estimated it would take Japan ten years compared to the three or four years of Germany or America. The Japanese therefore disbanded their nuclear research mission and told its members to focus on more important things like radar. From the 15th of March and over the next month, people started to move into the new laboratory with most of the scientific and technical staff moved in by mid-April, and they began to plan out the lab. On May the 27th, work began at Los Alamos, as Operation Gomorrah began over the skies of Hamburg, which were now filled with the view of the Royal Air Force. A review of the Los Alamos facility approved its research program and recommended a thermonuclear bomb to be a second priority behind fission bomb work. Now certain parts of the nuclear bomb work does feel like a heist film, perhaps mostly in the escape of Niels Bohr from Nazi-occupied Denmark. It starts with James Chadwick who sent a letter. Chadwick, we met earlier, said Bohr was wanted in England to help with science matters, and, quote, one project that his cooperation would be of considerable help with, close quotes. Without saying it, Chadwick hinted that Bohr wanted to work on nuclear fission. 
Denmark during the war had a constitutional government, but it was a puppet government to the Nazis. After the loss of Stalingrad, many Danes were rebellious, and the Danes still refused to hand over their Jews. So Hitler reinvaded and took control and took many of the Danish Jews. Many people fled Denmark towards Sweden, especially after many intellectuals were planned to be arrested. It wasn't long after this that Bohr was tipped off that he too was planned on being arrested. Bohr and his wife walked across Copenhagen to a seaside suburban garden and hid in a shed. They waited till night until a meetup would lead them towards the beach. They were run out to a fishing boat and through minefields and patrols and were taken to Sweden in a town near Malmo. From there they were sent to Stockholm, but were worried about assassination by German agents. So, with an invitation to England, they got in touch with the RAF. The RAF would, in an unarmed mosquito bomber, pick up Bohr, fly at 20,000 feet, and if under attack, so kitted him out he could be dropped into the North Sea with flares to get picked up by the Royal Navy, if need be. Without the measures needed, they managed to land in Scotland, and Bohr prepared for America. There was still much to be done at Los Alamos, though, and further afield, Ernest Lawrence's cyclotron was converted to a mass spectrometer in 1941, and he began to produce separated uranium-235. He managed to separate a 100 microgram sample of uranium-235. 100 kilograms, however, was needed. To separate 100 grams, it would take 2,004-foot cordotron tanks and a whole lot of magnets. If a bomb needed 30 kilograms to work, it would take 300 days to get enough material. The building of these collotrons involved discussions with the treasurer to get silver for winding around the coils of the electromagnets. It cost $300 million, approximately $4.2 billion in today's money. By 1942, an inspection trip stunned Ernest Lawrence, with 20,000 people working on the project. Los Alamos estimated they needed 40 kilograms of uranium. Massive amount of work was done elsewhere, with a uranium enrichment project at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and a plutonium site on the Columbia River in Washington State. The amount of work going into all these facilities boggles the mind. All this for something they thought might work. If the Nazis had trusted science, they could have won the war. Their rocketry and nuclear expertise suggests that. But then I suppose if they truly followed the science, they might not have been Nazis at all. All supervillains seem to have something that makes them incredibly strong and powerful, but these always cause weaknesses. And for the Nazis and all authoritarian regimes, their ability to implement large top-down projects can be immense. But their lack of ability to listen to reason and science and pushing far-sighted innovation is a feature inherent to that political model. The facility in Hanford, Washington, which produced plutonium, had water treatment plants that could have supplied a city of one million people. Enrico Fermi once said, you'd need to turn the United States into one big factory to make a nuclear bomb, and he wasn't far off. Soviet research stalled after the invasion of June 1941. However, it resumed in 1943, even with only 20 scientists. Meanwhile, the German-Norwegian heavy water factory was back online. So the British sent another bombing raid to destroy it, and Norwegian-resistant fighters sank the last of the Norwegian heavy water, as the Germans were shipping it back to Germany. Kurt Diebener said that the full effects of his act 
was essentially to sink any ideas of a German nuclear reactor before the war ended. Work continued slowly on the Manhattan Project. Work had to be slow. Nuclear experiments and making all the material was not going to be fast-paced. Life wasn't too bad at the Los Alamos facility. There were small and cheerful mixed-sex parties for singletons with alcoholic punch, while square dancing evolved as a Saturday tradition. Sundays too were relaxing time, with the Oppenheimer family riding regularly, while some of the facility took up fishing. On Christmas Eve, a radio station began to be broadcast, and in 1944, a golf course opened. The secret was hard to keep. When a science fiction magazine published a story of Uranium-235 being separated for atomic research to create a bomb, it was like somebody sent up a bomb in the FBI headquarters, and they almost shut down the magazine, only to be convinced out of it when it might have looked more suspicious to pull the magazine. In March 1944, true planning for a full-scale test of the weapon began to be planned. Between March and October, Oppenheimer proposed a name for this test. He wanted something history might remember, and so chose a John Dunn quote, As West and East, in all flat maps, and I am one, are one, so death doth touch the resurrection. Dying leads to death, but might also lead to resurrection. The bomb was a weapon that might end war, and redeem mankind. And in a better Dunn poem, he opens with, quote, Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you, close quotes. The codename for this test, therefore, was to be known as Trinity. There were still problems to be solved, such as a diagnostic system to measure events that took place in milliseconds. X-ray was seen as the best solution for that, while the initiator of the bomb needed to be developed. You didn't want to leave a bomb that had perhaps a billion dollars worth of uranium in it to chance. The challenge was to design a source of sufficient neutron intensity that would release neutrons at the precise moment needed to cause a chain reaction. The answer was polonium-210 and beryllium in order to induce a chain reaction. It took until May the 1st, 1945, for the best design to be selected, but only a test could prove if it would work or not. Meanwhile in the Pacific, the Japanese were not fighting with any less inferiority, despite their losing the war. Iwo Jima, a tiny island, saw one of the bloodiest battles of the war. No longer using Banzai tactics, the Japanese would instead fight to the death, and fight from cover to take as many Americans with them as possible. Many thought this was the Japanese plan to frighten Americans into not invading the home islands, if all resistance, it was thought, was to be this ferocious. There were some who thought of just dropping poison gas on the islands and getting on with it, but Roosevelt vetoed this. On the 23rd of February, 172 planes flew over Tokyo, bombing a full square mile of the wooden city. With Japanese oil reserves and many other reserves still low, the Air Force resorted to kamikaze methods. On the 9th of March, the bombing of Tokyo started again. High winds rushed the fire further and further across the city. The Strategic Bombing Survey estimated that more people died in that one night in Tokyo than at any other equivalent period of time in the history of mankind. 100,000 died and 1 million were wounded overnight. By September 1944, Ernest Lawrence Coltrons were now enriching uranium and by January 1945, it was producing enough to start thinking about making the bomb. 
By April 1945, there was enough uranium-235 to start thinking about a test. But another huge event happened that month. Franklin Roosevelt died on the 12th of April, and Harry Truman took office. He barely knew of the project at all. Truman was informed of the project by the Secretary of War. He was told a huge project trying to develop a bomb of unbelievable power was underway. Truman vaguely knew of the Manhattan Project since his Senate days, when he was on a committee to investigate wartime spending and attempted to explore what all his money was being used for, but this investigation was called off by Secretary of War Lewis Stimson. Discussions ensued between Truman and his advisers about the use of the bomb. The basics were laid down. B-29's range was 1,500 miles, with urban and industrial Japanese areas the primary targets. On May the 8th, Eisenhower announced the victory in Europe, and so now all attention turned to Japan. And for our story, this meant the best conditions for bombing were being worked out. Issues like detonation height, weather, targets, effects, and how much the yield of each bomb would be. The Air Force came back with two targets, Kyoto and Hiroshima. Kyoto had a large population with lots of industry, and as an intellectual centre, it would have great impact. Hiroshima was targeted because it was an important army depot with adjacent hills which could amplify the blast damage. The scientists at Los Alamos knew the radiation would have effects, but they were more worried about what it would do to the American crewmen in the planes than the average Japanese citizen. Meanwhile, the strength of the bomb was not really known, with initial plans aiming for two bombs to be dropped on targets and then followed up with by conventional air raids. That the nuclear bomb wouldn't work, people didn't doubt. If any nuclear weapon was to work, it would be the bomb they had designed. And so when it came to the Trinity test, they found Alamogado bombing range in Socorro County near the towns of Carrizo and San Antonio where there were only a few buildings which had been previously bought up by the US government. It was so remote, there had to be 200 miles of telephone wire strung to connect it, while electricity had to be supplied by portable generators. Estimates for the bomb's strength went from not exploding at all to destroying all life on Earth. Safe to say, many weren't entirely sure. All the scientists there, including Teller and James Chadwick, were told to look away and cover their eyes when it exploded, but none of them did. At 5.29am on the 16th of July, the bomb detonated. The fission multiplied its energy release through 80 generations in a millionth of a second, at tens of millions of degrees Celsius and millions of pounds of pressure. After the explosion, radiation instantly is released. The release of the bomb was awe-inspiring. Richard Feynman, also there, said he felt pain as the overly abundant photons rippled through his retinas and out the back of his head. He squeezed his eyes shut and temporarily experienced blindness. A conversation between General Groves and second-in-command Thomas Farrell shows the instant impact of the test. Farrell went up to Groves and said, the war is over, and Groves said yes, after we dropped two bombs on Japan. Meanwhile, the scientists were debating the kilotons of TNT released. The final figure was 21 kilotons. People left the facility in stunned silence with a dazed impression. At 5 hours, 29 minutes and 45 seconds past midnight on the 16th of July, 1945, 
the atomic age began in New Mexico. Meanwhile, Oppenheimer later said that phrase would come to define his work. He knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. As the president went to Potsdam for that famed conference, Groves and Oppenheimer were preparing a report about the test. Stimson took time during a tour of Berlin to think about what to do with Japan. It had no allies or navy, with the food supply and other supplies critically low, and the Americans now had inexhaustible military supplies in which to attack. Yet the Japanese were fanatical fighters, and moving through Japan was surely going to be more trouble than moving through Germany. Intercepted cables from Japan to the ambassador in Moscow had told him to send out peace feelers to the Soviets to see if they wanted to negotiate Japanese surrender. However, the Allies wanted unconditional surrender, which, to the Japanese leaders, seemed like undermining all of Japan's history and tradition. Furthermore, the Japanese still wanted to keep their conquered territory. Stimson reacted to the news of the bomb, saying that the $2 billion had been well spent. The president thought that the Japanese would fall before the Soviets entered the war, but that wasn't to be. Truman told Stalin about the bomb, but Stalin already knew. The Soviet secret agents were second to none. Meanwhile, the Truman administration released the Potsdam administration, which included the line that unless they duly surrender, quote, the alternative for Japan is prompt and utter destruction, close quotes. The Japanese worked out what that meant, but the Prime Minister, Suzuki, decided to fight on. A bomb named Little Boy was loaded onto the USS Indianapolis and sailed to Guam and unloaded on the 26th of July and from there to Leet in the Philippines for training, when a message came from Washington, quote, Hiroshima, according to prisoner of war reports, is the only one of four target cities that does not have allied prisoner of war camps, close quotes. In early August, the final touches were put on the bomb, and the bomb was assembled. On the 5th of August, they got word that on the 6th, the bomb would be dropped. It was 10.5 feet long and 29 inches in diameter, weighing 9,700 pounds. Colonel Paul W. Tibbets was due to fly the plane, which he'd named Enola Gay, after his mother's given names. At 2.46 on the 6th of August, the Enola Gay took off, and flying low to not use too much fuel, they headed for Japan. At 5.52, they approached Iwo Jima and headed towards Japan. So destroyed was the Japanese Air Force that it was no surprise there were no planes trying to shoot them down. Even a weather plane was able to fly over Hiroshima to report that the weather was fine and Hiroshima could indeed be bombed. At 7.50 Hiroshima time, they'd achieved landfall and were flying over Shokuku, the small islands east of Hiroshima. 
The men in the plane looked at each other and the bomb bay doors were opened. The bomb dropped and fell to the ground. The bomb had been inscribed with messages including one that said, Greetings to the Emperor from the men of the Indianapolis. As soon as the B-29 dropped the bomb, the plane shuttled away. Tibbets would later write, quote, I threw off the automatic pilot and hauled in the only gate into the turn. I pulled the anti-glare goggles over my eyes. I couldn't see them, I was blind. I threw them to the floor. A bright light filled the plane. The first shockwave hit us. We were 11.5 miles stand range from the atomic explosion, but the whole airplane cracked and crinkled from the blast. I yelled flak, thinking a heavy gun battery had found us. The tail gunner had seen the first wave coming, a visible shimmer in the atmosphere, but he didn't know what it was until it hit. When the second wave came, he called out a warning. We turned back to look at Hiroshima. The city was hidden by that awful cloud, boiling up, mushrooming, terrible and incredibly tall. No one spoke for a moment, then everyone was talking. I remember Lewis pounding my shoulder saying, Look at that! Look at that! Look at that! Tom Ferraby wondered about whether radioactivity would make us all sterile. Lewis said he could taste atomic fission. He said it tasted like lead. Close quotes. Little Boy exploded at 8.16.02 Hiroshima time with a yield of 12,500 tonnes of TNT. The day was a normal one for Hiroshima. An earlier air raid siren had been seen as a false alarm, as it was only one of the earlier weather planes. When Little Boy approached, the air raid siren went up again, but people thought it was more weather planes or planes dropping leaflets. So when the Enola Gay turned up, many people were outside looking up at the plane. One girl said she just looked up and then saw a flash of white light. Nobody close to the epicenter saw anything at all. They all died instantly. People within half a mile of Little Boy would turn to black char within seconds. One million degrees Celsius will do that to people. Birds, pets, mosquitoes and flies died instantly. With one bomb, 70 to 80,000 died, 70,000 injured and 20,000 military personnel were dead. Hiroshima as a city was no more. It took 16 hours for the Japanese to confirm what happened. All the telegraph lines were dead. It took rumours from distant railway stations to start dripping back information to Tokyo for Tokyo to send out a man to investigate the rumours of a terrible bomb. But it wasn't until Truman's announcement of the bomb that Tokyo knew the scale of what just happened. The Americans only had one more bomb and so thought if they dropped another quickly the Japanese would think they had a lot more. And so Fatman, the name of the next bomb, was already getting prepared. The Japanese military refused to surrender, while the foreign minister tried to get the Soviets to meditate a surrender. Stalin, despite knowing about the bomb, was still shocked by it. The Soviets declared war on the Japanese on the 9th of August. Perhaps one of the problems was that the destruction of Hiroshima was so complete there was no communication and perhaps a misunderstanding of just how complete the destruction was. The dropping of the second bomb is one of history's great questions. How necessary was it? What was the role of the Soviet invasion on the Japanese decision to surrender? How did the Soviets declaring war impact the decision to use the second bomb? 70,000 died in Nagasaki with more dying from the effects of radiation. But the military leaders would still not surrender. And so the Emperor sent an offer to surrender through Switzerland, accepting all American demands except the removal of the Emperor himself. 
It took a few days of debating with Japan, but finally the emperor won out and Japan surrendered. In perhaps one of the biggest understatements in history coming from the emperor, who spoke over the radio, in what was the first occasion any member of the public had heard his voice, he said, quote, The war has not progressed entirely as we would have wished. Close quotes. For the nuclear scientists, this was not the end of the story. For Edward Teller, the answer of how do we use the bomb and what to do with it was to build a bigger bomb. But the end of the war proved the end of Los Alamos. The war was over, and so the scientists went back to the university, with few interested in Teller's super bomb. With the end of the war, the US was the only country to own the bomb. Perhaps a good thing, as there were fears Stalin would not stop at Berlin and carry on heading west. But the secret wouldn't hold for long. Nuclear power isn't a fairy tale where only the good get the bomb. It was a puzzle, and anyone could solve it. Meanwhile, the British were annoyed with all the help they'd given the Manhattan Project and not gotten anything back. Roosevelt had promised to share the secrets after the war, but Truman ignored it. The Atomic Energy Act of 1946 forbade anyone from revealing the secrets on pain of death. This included Britain. However, the Soviets did have a head start. They had three spies inside the Manhattan Project. With the information gathered, they could copy Fermi's Chicago Pile Reactor, and then were able to skip over most of the American mistakes. And so by 1949, they had a bomb to test, which was almost a note-for-note -note copy of the Fat Man bomb. The US was no longer alone in having the bomb. The British too, with much nuclear expertise, although less resources in space than the Soviets and Americans, had the bomb by 1952. The United States were the first to use the bomb for civilian purposes, building the world's first electricity-generating nuclear power plant in 1951, using plutonium only. It made only enough power for four 200-watt light bulbs. The Soviets were the first to build a civilian power plant using a dangerous mix of technologies, with both a graphite moderator and water coolant. The reactor in 1954 was hooked up to the power grid, would later be scaled up to the design called an RBNK reactor, where one at Pripyat near Chernobyl would later be built. The British were the first to claim real civilian use of a nuclear power station in 1956 at Calder Hall. Opened by Queen Elizabeth, it was the first nuclear power plant producing energy at commercial rates. The plant had two aims, to produce plutonium for weapons research and extra electricity production in fear of coal miners going on strike and crashing the economy. The Americans arrived not long after Britain with a plant near Los Angeles. It was the first reactor in the US and the first to have a core meltdown only two years after being turned on. There were no injuries but a lot of radioactive gas was pumped into the atmosphere. The nuclear age also prompted something of a gold rush in the US. There was no known uranium mine in the US, and so the Atomic Energy Commission set the price of uranium higher than gold to prompt a search for it. Only three years later, a huge deposit was found in Utah. Meanwhile, Edward Teller was still pushing for an even bigger bomb. Teller had not gotten much traction for his ideas after the war. But when the Soviets announced their own bomb, things had changed. Stanislaw Ulam, a Polish mathematician, was too convinced of Teller's idea and modified it. The idea was to let fission happen and let it explode into a plasma ball 
and use the shock from the explosion to compress and heat hydrogen isotopes into fusion. Teller moved to a new lab, and on November 1, 1952, the world's first hydrogen bomb was ready to be tested. It was taken out to the Pacific and was 1,000 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. Three years later, and the Soviets had their H-bomb too. All this energy spent making bigger and bigger bombs had taken away from expertise in nuclear science for civilian purposes. The idea of a nuclear-powered submarine was something Hyman Rickover of the United States Navy was fanatical in pursuing. With uranium now freely available out of the Utah mine, and using uranium at 50% enrichment, it meant a submarine could sail for years at full speed without ever needing to refuel. The highly enriched uranium meant there was no need for graphite or heavy water, and the reactor could be as small as a garbage can. The design looked practical and safe, and so Edward Teller wrote to the Department of Defense to argue for it. On December 5th, 1947, Admiral Chester Nimitz received a letter from Rickover, and he was immediately fascinated by the prospect, and signed off on the letter. Things moved quickly after that, and Rickover was put in charge of both the naval and nuclear side of the project. Testing of the reactor proved it was capable of being under attack and not releasing radiation towards the crew. When the USS Nautilus was laid down, it was a highly prominent ceremony in 1954, with President Truman there. The Nautilus lasted 25 years without incident. It was the first submarine to cross under a polar ice cap. This proved to be the start, with much of the US Navy turning its fleet, such as aircraft carriers and missile cruisers, into nuclear-powered vessels. Nuclear power gets a bad rap sometimes, but more people have died from radiation by the sun than from man-made nuclear reactions. And by the 1960s, we start to see a proliferation of nuclear power plants. By 1961, and Soviet tests of nuclear weapons started to overtake the US. And in 1961, at the Novoye Zemlya Archipelago, the Soviets set off the world's largest ever man-made explosion. And the scale is staggering. Called the Tsar, it made a mushroom cloud 40 miles high, broke windows in Finland and weighed 27 tonnes. It was designed to be 100 megatons, but the engineers reduced it to 50 megatons. That's still 10 times the entire force of all bombs dropped in the Second World War. Nuclear power capacity grew quickly following its introduction, rising from production of 1 gigawatts in 1960 to 100 in the late 1970s. 300 gigawatts in the 1980s. But since the 1980s, production has not risen as quickly as opposition to nuclear power started to rise. This was both an economic and safety issue. The 1973 oil crisis affected different countries in different ways. In France and Japan, who relied on oil to create energy, they decided to diversify. In 2018, 72% of French electricity was produced by 58 nuclear reactors. However, opposition increased in the US, with concerns ranging from terrorism, nuclear accidents and radioactive waste. This hostility eventually had an impact on the US, with the US Atomic Energy Commission making it far harder to get a license to build a power plant. The partial reactor meltdown at Three Mile Island in 1979, according to some, also played a large part in the US anti-nuclear movement, though I think the seeds were already there.
The two biggest nuclear disasters of all time, Chernobyl and Fukushima, had different impacts on the development of the nuclear industry. Chernobyl led to a reduction in plant construction, though it didn't increase regulation in the West due to the RBMK reactor's lack of initial safety designs. But Fukushima in Japan led to Japan and Germany starting to slowly phase out nuclear power. But in some countries, there has been talk of a nuclear renaissance. China is powering ahead with nuclear power, while other countries seemingly constantly explore the idea of nuclear energy. But the future may not be in nuclear power, but of nuclear fusion, which is one of those ideas that has been around for decades, but whose time seemingly never comes. The risk of nuclear power, I think, are far overblown. Everything has a risk involved. For some reason, we are more scared of planes or nuclear power plants than cars and coal, despite them killing more people. Nuclear power does have hazards, such as uranium mining, but this can be done safely with masks and well-ventilated enclosed cabins. The most commonly thought about risk is a reactor meltdown. These aren't common, but happen occasionally. In 1957, the first such thing happened in Britain at the Windscale site, where the reactor began to overheat and to try and cool it down, the operators turned up the flow of cold air, despite the graphite and uranium already being alight. It was only when water was unloaded onto the fire that it was extinguished. The incident spread radiation to around 200 people, but it was only mild. In 2007 in Japan, an earthquake hit a nuclear power station and set parts of it on fire. The station was immediately shut down, with 315 gallons of contaminated water entering the ocean. The plant was closed for two years while safety checks were carried out. In 2009, another earthquake hit a nuclear power station, with the reactors instantly shutting down and radioactivity leaking. The 1979 incident at Three Mile Island, Pennsylvania, hit the headlines for weeks, with ideas that unless the reactor was brought under control, radioactive gas would spill and kill thousands. But the plant was well enough designed to include a failsafe, something Chernobyl seven years later did not have. With no questioning of authority, the Chernobyl power plant began an illegal reactor experiment in May 1986, and the reactor ran out of control with no failsafe. A buildup of hydrogen led to an explosion that blew apart the plant and released a large amount of radioactivity. The deaths resulting from the explosion ranged from 60 direct and 2,000 cases of thyroid cancer, but it made much land unsafer for production, and several thousand extra long-term cases of cancer, according to the UN, with upper estimates saying 16,000 across Europe died from some sort of effect. The Chernobyl disaster was entirely avoidable, with many of the all-type reactors used at Chernobyl having a retrofitted failsafe. It is fair to say that not all risks of nuclear power can be accounted for. In 2011, an earthquake and then tsunami hit Japan. The tsunami and earthquake killed tens of thousands and may cost up to $1 trillion to repair. The Fukushima Daiichi plant north of Tokyo saw its temperatures in the reactors rise and the explosion shaped the plant, but the containment vessels remained intact. In addition, the highly radioactive fuel rods which are kept in storage pools started to heat as the pools lost water and started to heat as power struggled to be restored to the plant. There was a small amount of radioactivity leaking and drinking water was contaminated with radioactive iodine. And with an already stretched nation dealing with the earthquake and tsunami, 
it wasn't easy. The case for nuclear power can actually be seen with Fukushima. Some compared it to Chernobyl, but the different construction meant that the blast would, in the worst case scenario, be less worse than Chernobyl. There was no human mistakes at Fukushima. Sometimes things go wrong. But not that many died. There have been other small incidents, but nothing major and no deaths. Every technological advance has seen reduced incidents. Nuclear accidents and reports are salaciously reported, but in the last 4,000 days that 450 nuclear power plants have operated without incident, there has been no such reports. There is more radiation coming from the granite at Grand Central Station, which exceeds the current safety limit imposed on nuclear power plants at the edge of their sites. Those who mountaineer would not think about the extra radiation they would receive from being closer to the sun. Radiation is a part of the environment. We're used to certain levels of it. Evolution through natural selection has seen to that. You don't go through 4 billion years of survival without being able to stand small amounts of radiation that does occur in the natural world. The human body even has several radioactive elements in our blood and bones. Potassium-40, carbon-14 and radium-226. We know that large amounts of radiation is not that great. That's why people wear sunscreen on a beach. The nuclear industry is one of the most tightly regulated in the world. Anything that goes wrong is more reported than famines, wars or anything else bad you can think of. Excluding the easily avoided Chernobyl disasters, the deaths in the industry is nothing compared to any other industry. Since the 1970s and its widespread adoption, nuclear power has prevented 1.84 million air pollution related deaths and the emission of 64 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. But this isn't just a promotion of nuclear energy. It's about the technology of nuclear energy. And there is one more piece of technology that if it ever came to fruition would be one of the greatest events of mankind. The sun is a nuclear reactor using nuclear fusion and it takes light and safe elements and burns them into heavier ones. It releases power as these elements fuse together and gives out huge amounts of energy in the form of heat and light. The sun is so powerful it can maintain all life on Earth. Scientists of course know this, and so they have been trying to replicate it. The idea of this potential power goes all the way back to the 1930s, but with clean energy now in vogue, perhaps the idea of nuclear fusion can come back. That these ideas have been known and explored is well attested to, and much money has been invested in trying to develop it but nothing has come just yet. Two things keep people coming back to it. It would be perhaps one of the most significant technical advancements man has yet achieved, and its ramifications would be so huge that not investing in it would be negligent. Fusion is all about trying to bring little particles close enough so they might fuse together. In our sun, the process of hydrogen fusion occurs. In the sun, hydrogen latches onto heavier hydrogen and then into helium as the energy releases via heat and light that we see from the sun. For fusion to occur, two protons need to be brought closer together and if they do get close enough, they might fuse. High temperatures are required so the protons are moving fast enough to overcome the electrostatic repulsion to each other. So a fusion reactor will need to get up to 15 million degrees Celsius and probably hotter than that too. The best idea we have to do this is the tokamak. This is one of the most popular ways of getting to this temperature.
First, you need a high vacuum changer in the shape of a polo mint. And in the tokamak, you have plasma of up to 300 million degrees confined. Even if the machine breaks, the plasma will stop and turn into harmless gas. With the use of deuterium, which is a hydrogen isotope abundant on Earth, and fusing it with another hydrogen isotope, tritium, a radioactive isotope of hydrogen, the neutrons released will be used to drive a steam turbine to generate electricity. Near Oxford in a town called Cullum, where two tokamak fusion reactors are held, it makes the UK one of the world leaders in fusion research. Its job is to demonstrate that fusion can work. The device is crazy. Engineers can replace neutron damage in the tokamak wall tiles with robots, which can feel resistance through controls so not to damage the walls when screwing new parts in. The reactors at Cullum are designed to produce 500 megawatts in very short spaces of time and result in a net power surge. It's not quite commercial, but getting there. Successful production of fusion power holds the prospect of an almost unlimited supply of energy for thousands of years without any carbon emissions. As the world needs more and more energy and needs more and more electricity, we have no choice but to produce more clean energy. This should be in a variety of ways, but nuclear is the most consistent and reliable. Energy is produced by using natural power sources. There is much of it about. The sun provides us with life, which we can eat for energy, and millions of years ago became fossil fuels that we can burn for energy. Now we think about the sun's power more directly, which produces all energy on Earth, even things such as wind, tidal or light, which in the end all comes from the sun. All power comes from the sun, except maybe nuclear power. Not only for the first time in history did we manage to control nuclear reactions, but we produce energy that didn't come from the sun. Perhaps in future, that will be seen as a more important thing as humanity progresses. In future, we may solve many issues by producing energy from our own sun by nuclear fusion plants. Fusion may lead to many revolutions in our life, just as the steam and internal combustion engine once did. More energy always leads to more inventions. This is all cyclical, and once we fully utilise the ability to produce energy in the same way the sun does, in hundreds of years' time, we might even need more energy from somewhere more powerful than nuclear fusion. To those in the 19th century, coal and oil must have seemed like a limitless energy. Now it is limited. Fusion may become outdated and not give us as much energy as we need. Then we'll look to exploit different and more powerful natural phenomena. Maybe scientists and engineers will be able to recreate the Big Bang and harness the energy from that all in a power plant. We will always need more energy. Nuclear power is a remarkable invention. It is controversial, from nuclear weapons to nuclear power plants. But so far, nuclear power is more of a white ball than a grey ball in Nick Bostrom's test of the balls of innovation. It provides us with power, where a large-scale nuclear warfare has yet to occur, something we can only hope stays away. That's something that's so potentially destructive and yet so beneficial, and will only get more so is one of the great ironies of the universe. And so for all of these reasons, nuclear power is listed at number 62 of my greatest inventions of all time.